intelligent, sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. If there is anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible. America was founded on liberty and independence and not government coercion, domination, and control. We are born free, and we will stay free. Tonight, we renew our resolve that America will never be a socialist country. What magic wand do you have? A really strong job report to start the year, finishing really after a very strong year last year. 2.6 million jobs created last year, and, and here, the first month of this year, 304,000 net new jobs. That's more than economists had expected. And now, Stacey Washington. Hey there, welcome back to the program. Thanks for making your home in American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. We are so excited to be with you, and we have Jonathan Wood. He's a freaking guest on the program. He's actually an attorney for the Pacific Legal Foundation, and he has some updates on that Congressional Review Act uh, legislation that was, uh, you know, there's lawsuits, there's a whole bunch of stuff flying around. He's going to update us on that. And um, I'm actually, like, gleefully excited about sharing with you this um it's a bit of news about president trump's tax law so bernie sanders as we all are just finding out and beginning to know and accept and just that information is being received that he is a millionaire he's rich he's a one percenter his book sales have propelled him into a new realm of wealth and prosperity and we are happy for him because we are capitalists and we just want to hear him say that he's no longer a socialist that's really all I want to hear him say I want to hear him just admit that capitalism works and that he he has almost no accomplishments in the like when he was in the private sector he wrote horrible horrible essays uh, about rape and everything else. He was just a loser. And then he decided to become an elected official. And upon doing that, he found some success. He's, it, mind you, success being, you know, depends on what your definition of success is. Bernie Sanders doesn't have any signature legislation under his belt. He's never championed an idea and had it just become mainstream enough to become legislation. But somewhere along the line, in conjunction with the Democrats' takeover of K-12 through education and then the higher education, Enough Americans have become uh, really enamored of this idea that we should be socialists that his book, he's written, I think, three books, they've propelled him to this kind of economic success. And that's how America works. If you write a book that's garbage, trash, and enough people love it, then you're going to reap the benefits of, of book sales. It's really, it's irrelevant what your ideology is. It's if you can get enough social buzz going around you to make it possible for enough people to say, I'm buying that book because it's the book you want to have on your little Ikea $60 coffee table in your, you know, walk-up apartment. If enough people do that, then so be it. There it is. And uh, then you become, royalties become millions and one house becomes two and you get a boat and, you know, 
But when is he going to admit that that's what's happened to him and that in, consequently he's no longer a socialist because he hasn't redistributed any of that money, but just so you know. So here's the story. You've got uh, the Trump tax law, which reduced taxes for lots and lots and lots of people, especially uh, small business owners, people like that, which I think is wonderful. And I've, I've been talking about how excited I was for these changes from the moment that the Tax Cuts and Reinvestment or Jobs Tax Cuts and Reinvestment Act was proposed. And I hoped that the president would make good on his promise to cut taxes for everyone. Well, not only did he do that, um, but he has made it possible for people like Bernie Sanders to receive the benefits of this, this legislation as well. And you know what's super important about it? That no matter what your ideology is, you can still experience the tax cuts. That's the beauty of the free market system and you know, tax cuts that are done by Republicans, we can all benefit from it. Whether or not you support the president, whether you voted for him or not, whether you think he's awesome. Um, so it's two things. First off, did you know that Bernie Sanders has a son who's actually older than Pete Buttigieg and Beto O'Rourke? Yeah. Just to give, kind of give you some benchmarks by which to judge old Bernie bros, Ber- Bernie Sanders and his bros. So here's the information about his taxes. He's released his taxes because he's running for president. And it appears that he saved roughly 38000 thanks to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which cut most Americans' taxes. He's released 10 years' worth of tax returns as of Monday night. He promised to do that. And he says he collected more than $1 million in 2016 and 2017 from the sales of his books, Our Revolution and Bernie Sanders' Guide to Political Revolution. Now, he's dodged questions about his newfound wealth, et cetera, et cetera. Even at that Fox News town hall that people are kind of angry about, he declined to say if he would pay the top rate of 52%. So the top tax rate is 52%, which he proposed. So that's not in our current tax law, but in his proposal during his 2016 run for the White House, Bernie Sanders proposed that the top tax bracket be 52%. He did not respond to a question from Fox News's Martha McCallum about voluntarily giving money to the government to bring his tax bill up to what he thought the fair rate was. Because if he did so, let's do the simple math here. If he increased his tax rate from where it is now to uh, the 52%, that'd be an increase of almost 20 or almost 30%. And of course, he's not going to do that. And this is this is what we see every single time. Guess who else is a multimillionaire? Kamala Harris. Guess who else is advocating for higher tax rates? Kamala Harris. They all advocate for gun control. Guess who just admitted she owns a gun? Kamala Harris. These people, I mean, the hypocrisy runs so deep and so strong, they can't even see it. So, of course, you know, the uh, people who love crunching numbers and love tax season have already done an analysis. There's a place called the Tax Foundation. It's a right-leaning think tank. They took Sanders' 2016 proposal when he was running for president for the new tax brackets, which would increase taxes for everyone. And that proposal added four new top tax brackets with rates of 37%, 43%, 48%, and 52%. 
It would also add a 2.2% income-based health care premium paid by households, which would be the equivalent of raising everyone's taxes by 2.2%. In other words, can't pay for his crazy ideas unless everyone pays more in tax, which goes against what they say. They say that poor people shouldn't pay more in tax, only rich people should, but everybody would pay more under his proposals. Using their estimates of Sanders' brackets, as well as the senator's reported 2018 taxable income of $519,529, and let's just put a pin in this for a second, and I don't begrudge anybody their income, but Bernie Sanders is a socialist who earned in America in 2019 or 2018 over $500,000. Now, he's obviously his kids are adults. They're elderly adults almost. What does he need with 500 some odd thousand dollars? And when I say that to you, honestly, what does he need with it? And I don't mean it because I want him to give it to me. No, thank you. Not interested in that. But why would a socialist want to keep that kind of money? It seems like it would be antithetical to his very existence. It would be so repugnant to him to earn that kind of money that he would say, what are our basic needs? And we're giving the rest of this away to poor, to people who are indigent, anyone who is on a social safety network, anything, but keeping that money. So if his tax rules were applied, let's say he was the president and he implemented that tax thing, which immediately, like, not a good idea, but that's what he was running on. His total tax liability under his own scheme would have been $170,000, over $170,000. If he were paying taxes under his own plan, he'd be shelling out an additional $36,000 plus to the government. And his tax liability would have been 32.7% of his income. So he's saving so much money, just like millions of other Americans, because Donald Trump is the president. Honestly, shouldn't Bernie Sanders have stopped at that town hall and just said, you know what, as a new millionaire, I got to say thank you to Donald Trump for saving me almost 40 grand. Well, you know, people who are enemies don't often thank each other. So maybe it's a bit much to expect him to do that, but still. So multiple tax policy think tanks have provided tools to estimate the tax liability with and without the TCJA. And using the information provided in Sanders' 2018 tax return, the calculators indicate that he has received major benefits to his bottom line. Now, these aren't perfect. Like there are certain things that they assume that may not have been specific to his tax returns. They analyze them and then they make certain assumptions and then they apply what he said his tax policy was and compare it to what the current tax policy is. But overall, the idea here is He's saving gobs of money. I mean, raise your hand up. I know for our terrestrial listeners, y'all can't see me, but I got my hand up. I got the single hand up with one finger raised like you do when you're in church and you need to leave the sanctuary. And so you kind of jump up and you crouch down, you put one finger up and then you scurry out because you don't want to disturb the other. Everybody else is in the word. They're listening to the pastor. I had a finger up like that. If I'd be happy with saving that kind of money or having a check from the U.S. Treasury to me for that amount, 40 grand. Um, yeah, I would be, I'd totally be happy with that. And so not that I'm, I'm paying that amount. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I, that, that's not an admission or anything, but I'm just saying who, who around these parts wouldn't be happy with 40 grand. 
he should be very happy and very grateful that the president implemented a policy that doesn't say everybody but the socialists gets a tax cut. Wouldn't that have been something? So don't forget, last little bit here, don't forget that when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act came up for a vote, Bernie Sanders voted against it. And even though he voted against it, he still gets to reap the benefit of saving nearly 40 grand on his 2018 taxes. In 2019's taxes, next year we're in 2020, Bernie Sanders will be saving the same or more, depending on how much money he makes this year. So over time, until the Democrats can find a way to claw this tax cut back, until the American people go straight nincompoopville and usher in Democratic rule and give them the opportunity to roll all of these wonderful benefits back, Bernie Sanders will save roughly 40 grand a year. So two years left, that's 80,000 plus the 40 he already saved. So he's going to save 120,000, basically more than twice the median income for a family of four in the United States. He's going to save twice that number on his taxes, thanks to President Trump. Isn't that a bit of irony? I think it is. I actually think that is, it's not just ironic, it's crazy pants. There should be, a, I don't know how it would work, but just off the top of my head, wouldn't it be an interesting um, interesting thing if from here on out, whatever tax policy there was, if you vote for it you're, and it wins, you get it. If you vote against it and it passes, you don't have to go under it. Think about what would happen the Democrats are passing some huge tax increase and the Republicans vote against it and everyone who votes against it and their represent. So the constituents they represent don't have to go under the new tax plan. The tax increase would go only to the Democrats. Could you see them ever passing another one? They would never pass another tax increase again. And they would vote for every tax cut. Pretty amazing. All right. When we get back, we're going to have Jonathan Wood of the Pacific Legal Foundation. Stay right there. More Stacey on the right up next. It's amazing, but true. When it comes to one of America's biggest household expenditures, health care, a lot of people think they've got no choice. People are used to thinking we have to do it this way, but they don't. Yes, you have the freedom to choose an alternative with your health care. It's MediShare, and it costs way less than the alternatives. The typical family saves $500 a month, not a year, a month. And if you're single, this can save you a lot, too. And let's face it, a big reason MediShare is 400,000 people strong, it just works. They've shared over $3 billion in medical bills, so they can help share your needs, too. Joining MediShare for so many people is one of those things that makes you say, why didn't I do this before? So yes, the time has come for something better. Look into joining MediShare and see why so many people are opting out of the old way and into the new. Why not look into this? Just call 855-PSALM-23. That's 855-PSALM-23. 855-PSALM-23. 
Up next, Carol Swain with two minutes to think about it. From poverty to professor, from GED to PhD, a bold Christian speaking truth to power. Here's Carol with today's two minutes. If you're like me, you're fed up with the leftist tactics. We have the Mueller report. The president has been cleared of collusion with Russia to win the 2016 election. You would think that the president's haters who pinned their hopes and desires on his being arrested and walked out of the White House in handcuffs would have gone away quietly. You would be wrong if you expected them to show the decency to do that. No, they are up in arms again with another conspiracy theory. This time, it's about Attorney General Barr. He only released a small summary of the report, as if the average American would want to read the entire 300 pages. The left now argues that the redacted form is hiding something. Really? Peering over the shoulder of the Attorney General through all of this redacting was Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Rod were a wire Rosenstein, who's no fan of the president, is not one that would have allowed the president to get away with anything. This two-year collusion delusion, the flight of fancy of the president's haters and their media buddies is quickly coming in for a very hard landing. Learn more about Dr. Carol M. Swain and help support her ongoing work with your tax-deductible donation to Be The People Project at carolmswain.com. That's carolmswain.com. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the show. You can find out more about us at StacyOnTheRight.com, AFR.net, and UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome our next guest back to the program. We have Jonathan Wood. He's an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, Jonathan, thank you for coming back on today. Thank you for having me. All right, let's talk about the. You have follow up on the uh, Conver- Congressional Review Act. The I think the last time you came on, that's what we discussed. That's right. I think last time I was on, we were talking about a decision from a federal court in Idaho uh, saying that people could sue agencies to force them to comply with the Congressional Review Act. For your listeners that don't recall, the Congressional Review Act is one of the most important laws for holding federal agencies accountable. It requires them to submit every rule they want to impose on us to Congress first so that our elected representatives have a chance to review what agencies are doing. And yet we found that agencies are systematically failing to comply with that law. And this week, or last week, we learned that the government itself is recognizing that problem. An organization, an agency called the Office of Management and Budget within the White House issued a memorandum uh, directing agencies that they have not been complying with the law and that they need to start sending every rule they enact to Congress as required. Okay, that sounds fantastic, but is that actually going to happen? Well, I think it's certainly in the short term. The fact the administration is coming out and taking this position, that message will be will filter down to the agency. So I expect we'll see a spike of compliance in the short term. But 
realistically, the only way this law and other laws designed to hold agencies accountable can work is if the court takes seriously their obligation to enforce the law. If you or I can't go to court and say an agency is unlawfully imposing a rule on us that hasn't been reviewed by Congress, then there's really no reason why, over the long term, agencies should comply with this law. Um, and so that's why it, it, it's great and very important that the administration is doing the right thing and trying to get agencies to clean up their act. But frankly, unless Congress and the courts also get involved and take these obligations seriously, there's little reason to think it will last. Hmm. So uh, I, all I want to do is have them accountable for the stuff that they pass because it seems like they're in a room with a bunch of cats and monkeys and they just think up stupid stuff and they write it down and then it becomes something that us regular Americans who actually have real jobs and real responsibilities, we have to follow it. And if we complain about it, it's like if I were to walk up to a wooden door and complain. I cannot logically expect a wooden door to respond to my complaints, to respond to my complaints. But that's what they're like. And it's like that with all like all government officials. When you go to them and you say, um, you have this rule that says I can't do X. The first thing they say is, well, I don't have anything to do with that rule. I just I just work here. Um, I don't know what you I don't know what you can do. They point you to a website or a phone number and then you're just stuck because there's nobody there that can help you either. That's exactly right. Accountability is absolutely key, and it's something our founding fathers recognized when they wrote the Constitution. The reason why there's no unaccountable agency branch of the government is because they thought that idea was extremely dangerous. They wanted the lawmaking power to stay with Congress, the people we elect to write the laws, and sadly, that's not the government we have today. Almost all laws are written by bureaucrats in agency offices that most of us have never heard of, and there is little Congress does or can do to try to restrain these agencies. Unless laws like the Congressional Review Act are followed and enforced, that situation is going to get worse, not better. Um, yeah. I, so what else can people, like regular people, do? Because uh, oftentimes we'll hear you know, an interview on a radio show. I know sometimes I do that. I'll be listening during the day, and I'm like, oh, I just, wow, well, that, that was an interesting... What can what can we do to help? Is it writing letters to our legislators, or do we need to co- make public comment on something? Or what, where where can we chime in on this? Well, I think it starts with trying to get Congress to, to step in and do something. And one of the ironies, and one of the reasons why it's so important that this power remain in Congress is that you can reach your congressman and, and your senator and have some influence. You can write letters. You can you can you can call their offices. Most people are never going to be able to reach, say, the Secretary of Agriculture, even if they figure out who that is. Um, So agencies really are insulated from voters and the American people in a way that Congress isn't. So there's an opportunity to to tell your congressman, your senator, that the power exercised by administrative agencies concerns you and that you expect them to do something about it. The way we got here is that Congress was happy. Uh, to kick the can over to agencies and let them write all the laws, because that way they weren't held accountable for it. And until the American people start holding Congress accountable once again, that's probably not going to change. So we can write our legislators at their offices. So we're talking about our federal ones, not our local and state reps. So the, the, um, the two senators from each state, 
you figure out which one of them's yours, write them about it. Um, is there a website where people can go and read more information about what's going on? Yes. Uh, the easiest way to find out more about this issue and really everything that, that PLF is involved in is through our website, which is pacificlegal.org. Okay. So writing the letter, and then is there anything else? Well, you know, the other thing in what PLF is doing to try to vindicate the Congressional Review Act and vindicate the importance of democratic accountability is to hold agencies accountable. We filed two lawsuits uh, to enforce the Congressional Review Act against agencies that haven't complied. Um, more people need to be looking at opportunities like that. If you're subject to a rule uh, that is, you know, threatening your business or, or your ability to use your property, that is an, an option you have to, to try to get the rule enjoined or struck down and force agencies to finally start complying with the law. Until these rules are sent to Congress and our elected representatives are answerable for their content, uh, there's little reason to think that agencies are going to change their behavior. It's accountability is what's necessary to ensure that agencies keep within the power they've been given. Mm. I like it. I like the accountability aspect of it. And I like the way it puts the onus back on them because they, they kind of, they're able to get away from it when they say, oh, those regulations or those rules were proposed by that agency. So it's almost as if they're saying, I don't have anything to do with that. You can't, you can't get mad at me over that. When in reality, they give this power to agencies. They cede the power to them. That's exactly right. My, my friend Tim Sandifer at the Goldwater Institute likes to say that the perfect law in the eye of many legislatures is a law that says there should be no bad thing and then creates an agency charged with figuring out what bad things are and, and enforcing <laughs> uh, the law. That way, the politician can say, well, look, I solved all the bad things. And then when the agency does something, they say, oh, I didn't mean that. Go talk to the agency. Don't blame me. And really, that's what modern federal, our modern federal government is about. Congress enacts very vague laws and punts most of the difficult decisions to agencies and then tries to avoid accountability for that. Well, the way to stop it is for us to hold our government officials, the elected ones, accountable and if they don't seem interested in doing anything about this, then they're not the right ones to be there for next time. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll have to definitely keep our eyes peeled and, and writing our legislators about this. You can head over to the Pacific Legal Foundation's website. Give that one more time, Jonathan. PacificLegal.org. PacificLegal.org. You can head over there, find out more about it, and then kind of craft up a letter. And it doesn't have to be lengthy. Um, but you just have to make sure and include your address so they know you're their constituent and then send it over and just keep a copy for yourself. You could make a little folder. I, I love, I mean, sometimes I wonder if I'm being totally effective, but I love having the folders where if I have one, if everything of one item, I just stick in that folder, then it is easier for me to find later. And you just keep a record of them. And then if you don't hear anything back straight off, just write them again. Um, post your letter to Facebook and tell some friends, hey, guys, I wrote this letter. I'm not hearing anything back. Usually if you send a paper letter, though, they'll, they'll respond because they keep a record of who writes them on paper. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I'm amazed about every time I talk to any of my friends that work on the Hill, that it really doesn't take that much. Whenever some, a congressman or senator hears from a few dozen constituents on, on one issue, they know to take that seriously, that it's, they care and respond when you write letters like that. Hmm. Well, 
let's get to it, folks. We got to write our uh, our Congress critters and our senators about this unelected bureaucratic malaise that we're seeing where they get to make rules up that hurt us and we can't hold our elected officials accountable because they always defer to the agencies. We got to get things back in good working order. And I don't actually think it's impossible to do or even that difficult to do. We just have to remember to write the letters and hold them accountable. I think we may have lost him. All right. So that was Jonathan Wood, attorney for the Pacific Legal Foundation. Um, Great to chat with him again and get an update on that issue. Um, I would say, yeah, I'm not, we're not taking any more callers this hour, you guys. We still have trolls calling into the show, trying to get on so they can spew um, their demonic profanity. And I just, I actually think it's funny that these people are unemployed and actually so unintelligent that they think that getting on the radio and saying stuff like that is going to do what? Change people's minds, turn people into Democrats, make them love socialism, or it's going to disrupt the show and we're just going to be like, you know what? Forget it. We're just not going to do a show anymore. Like, What do they think is going to happen? So they're just calling in because they have nothing else to do. And also because their brains are really slow and they don't have a lot of uh, ability to kind of discern between right and wrong behavior. Yeah, no thanks. Um, So (laughs) this is pretty interesting. Arizona now has a city that has migrant mobs roaming the streets, clashing with the residents. I mean, did you ever think this would happen in America? So let me, let me give you the data here. It's Yuma, Yuma, Arizona. You've heard of this place before, right? They're on the U.S. border. Uh, so Yuma, Arizona is just over the, um, the border from, um, guys, I just got some extremely good news that just flashed across my computer. And that's why I sound like I'm just discombobulated. I just got some awesome news. Praise God. I'm going to deal with that later. Live radio. Thank you for being with me. And thank you so much for your encouragement. That's to people who you've been reaching out or you've been putting in the comments. You've been DMing me. Thank you for that. I appreciate that so much. Um, Okay. So this story is about Yuma, Arizona. Yuma is just over the border from Mexico. Okay. Work with me, folks. This is ground zero for what we've all been talking about. And if you're one of those people, you've been praying, you've been you know, more power to you. Please don't stop. Please keep pounding on the gates of heaven on behalf of these border towns. These people don't deserve this stuff. They don't deserve it. Um, So you got Yuma, Arizona. They've now declared a state of emergency. This was yesterday on Tuesday. They say they can't handle the crush of illegal immigrants the government is being forced to release onto their streets. Mayor Douglas Nichols said the migrants are being released by the Border Patrol into his community faster than they can leave. Local shelters are overflowing. There's no room for them. And you guys know how this is. If you live anywhere in the country, you'll see news stories, and they're usually not front page, about how shelters are at capacity. Um, police will arrest someone who's homeless out in one area of you know the suburbs and bring them to one of the shelters, which are usually located downtown someplace. And if the shelter is at capacity... They're taking the person down there and dropping them off just to put them on another street. They lifted them off one street and put them on another. They do that because they want to keep the homeless kind of corralled in one location 
But it doesn't stop a homeless person from hitchhiking or walking back out to any other place they think they might be able to get people to give them money at the overpass or at the the stoplight or whatever. Now, take that situation where we have homeless shelters in America that are overflowing so much so that a lot of homeless people already know there's no bed space for me at any homeless shelter. So I'm not even going to go there. I'm going to go find someplace else to spend the night, to sleep, you know, wherever I can find to just to have some shelter against the elements. Well, this is a totally... Like this makes that situation look like a walk in the park, right? I mean, we're talking about mobs of people roaming the streets, looking to satisfy basic human needs. They're clashing with citizens who are looking to protect their own property. He says there's an imminent threat on having too many migrant releases into our community. It's above our capacity as a community to sustain. Now, I already said yesterday, and I'm going to say it again, President Trump, you made the threat. Make good on it, sir. President Trump, it's time for you to start busing these people to the places where they belong, sanctuary cities, because the people of Yuma, Arizona, don't deserve this. They don't deserve it. So he says it's an untenable situation, and they are begging the federal government to give them a solution. Mr. Nichols said he's also trying to get other Arizona communities to issue similar declarations, hoping that the critical mass of voices will cut through the partisan gridlock. Now, I actually, I don't think that's what's going to work. I don't think communities that are already receiving the illegal aliens on the border are going to be able to stop this. I also am wondering, when he says clashes, what kind of news story are we going to see? I mean, this is so unacceptable. Americans literally defending their property from roving gangs of migrants with guns? Is that where we are? You would think that the liberals would say, well, we got to stop that because we don't believe in guns. So we certainly don't want to give gun owning Americans an excuse to defend themselves. But no, as long as you keep the illegal aliens out of San Francisco and, you know, Connecticut and, and as long as you keep it out of there, out of the sanctuary cities, New York City, they'll be fine. Keep on absorbing those immigrants. That's what they say. I mean, I just it's it's mind boggling. It's tyranny and it's sin run amok. And we have to have a stop to it. They're overwhelmingly families and unaccompanied children. (sighs) Of the children and families that came in 2017, more than 98% of them are still in the U.S. at the beginning of this year. So. I don't know what they're going to do. We'll be back with more right after these messages. Stay there. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. Illegal aliens cost the United States taxpayers an estimated $135 billion a year. Those same illegal aliens have sent an amount almost equal to that to three Central American nations since 2009. Annual remittances from illegal aliens living and working in the United States represent 20% of the economy in Honduras and El Salvador. Congress has made attempts to pass legislation taxing remittances at 7%. In 2016, immigrants in the United States sent home 
at least $138 billion. 7% of that would be nearly $10 billion, an amount that represents a sizable chunk of the money requested by President Trump to finish the border wall. Leadership in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras understand that America's elected officials lack the will to tax remittances or stop their citizens from coming into the country illegally. Why improve their countries when they can send their citizens here and reap the windfall? I'm Stacey Washington. Find out more at StaceyOnTheRight.com. Abraham Hamilton III. God put us in this world at this time to be salt and light. We don't fold because of the darkness that we're facing. This is not the first time in the world's history that it's gotten dark. God has called you and I to be his ambassadors, even in this dark moment. Tune in to the Hamilton Quarter, weekdays at 5 p.m. Central on Urban Family Talk. Listen, do you really know who Jesus is? And let me help you to know who he is. You think about all of these kind of false Jesuses that are floating around social media. Oh, you know the Jesus. You know, you got the ethnocentric Jesus. You got the political Jesus, left-wing Jesus. You know, all these popular Jesuses. But but the, the question I think all of us need to ask is will the real Jesus stand up? Please stand up. Please stand up. Tuned in to Equipped. Weekday afternoons at 12 Central on Urban Family Talk. Stacy Washington. And so to this day, I don't even, I don't eat green beans. If they bring me a plate of food at a restaurant and they've substituted green beans for some other vegetable because the other vegetable is out of season, I will make them bring me a saucer and remove the green beans from my plate and take them off of the table because I cannot abide green beans. And so Chuck Schumer and the Democrats have to sit down to the table and it's loaded up high with green beans and they have to stay there until they've eaten them all. That's the table they set. They boiled the green beans, they picked them, they snapped them, they put them into the steamer, they've cooked them, they seasoned them with salt and pepper, and now they're on the table with a little side of butter, and that's all they're getting, and they're going to have to eat these until they win. Stacy on the Right, weekday afternoons at 2 Central on Urban Family Talk. Watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. What we're going to be looking for is there's three specific areas where I think there was some type of setup involved. So the first is involved with General Flynn. General Flynn was supposedly uh, entrapped, uh, was, was meeting with a Russian woman. I want to know what really happened there because, you know, we're just now finding out about this and, and we need more, a lot more information on, you know, what really was General Flynn doing because it's a big deal if, they're, if, if somebody within our intelligence agencies were accusing a three-star general of having some type of Russian fleeing, it's serious stuff. And I want to, I want to get to the bottom of that. All the right. second big question you have is Joseph Mifsud. Joseph Mifsud is how this whole investigation started. And let me tell you, Mueller describes him as some type of Russian asset of some kind. Well, if, if Joseph Mifsud was a, was a Russian asset, we've got big problems with our British and Italian allies because he seems to be pictured uh, with every British and, and Italian person that we know of. So that's something we also want to know about. And Mifsud was the guy who set up Papadopoulos. So that was Representative Devin Nunez explaining what he'll be looking for in the Mueller report. And um, I so I want to get through the rest of that audio before we get to 
a breaking news story. Um, and that the story that we shared right before we went to break about Yuma, Arizona, declaring a state of emergency over a surge of migrants. Oh, my goodness. That is so upsetting. That is so ridiculous and out to just what in what what did they think was going to happen? Just keep dumping people there and it was going to magically become something else. What's funny is they keep talking about how they get dumped into the border towns and they move elsewhere within the country. Well, not if they don't have family to receive them. If they're just there because they think they're going to come here and magically get jobs, then they're just roaming around waiting for that to materialize. And the people of Arizona, are, they have to be thinking, what do you expect us to do with all these people? What are they supposed to do? So, all right, I'm bouncing around here. Let me get back to this uh, Representative Nunez is talking about the Miller report, which comes out tomorrow. And um, he had uh, three things that he felt were he was going to see, like his expectations. He kind of blocked them off into three separate things. It's number six. Finally, the third issue I'm going to know about is this infamous Trump Tower meeting. When you hear the Democrats talk about that there's evidence in plain sight. Well, the Russians that are involved in the Trump Tower, the infamous Trump Tower meeting in New York, I call them the Fusion GPS Russians. Fusion GPS was the company that was working for the Clinton campaign and the Democrats. And somehow Glenn Simpson meets with them before and after. And he's and he's actually these are Russians that he's doing work for. I mean, come on. If Mueller can't get to the bottom of this and answer this for the American people, I don't know what the report was really worth. So what was it worth? Well, 30 some odd million dollars, I think. Um, and a lot of really toil and and upset for the American people and for those who were caught up in the dragnet trying to find something that they could pin on Donald Trump. Uh, And I, again, if you're just tuning into the show and you've never heard me talk about it before, you know, first of all, welcome. Thank you for being here. And I'm never going to condone, you know, tax evasion or embezzlement or any of the other things that some of the people who were in Trump world briefly, however briefly they were, were ensnared in for years before they ever knew Donald Trump or afterward. Um, What is so interesting about it is that people have characterized President Trump as being this really dirty individual who just everything he does is so wrong. People who work for him had some interesting things that they were involved in. Some of them are only in trouble because they couldn't accurately remember emails and phone conversations from years before and their mixed characterizations in one interview were used in another interview to paint them as lying to Congress, lying to the FBI, et cetera, et cetera. Never mind Hillary's behaviors and stuff like that. And I know somebody out there just, they literally, they're, now they're jumping, they're triggered. People get so mad when I bring up Hillary's emails or the scandals of the Obama administration because he was scandal free and Hillary Clinton's never lied to anyone. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. And get, if you're triggered, I mean, you know, God bless. Be do, you do you. Be be the best person you can be, triggered or otherwise. Um, but it is something to see all of this hubbub and Donald Trump. We still haven't seen anything on him, so I don't excuse what other people did that got them in trouble. But I also think it's really unfair to ask someone what their emails say and then charge them with lying to you if they don't accurately recount what emails from years before say they didn't do that to Hillary. So anyway, um, so there's that. And then I said we're going to so we're gonna pivot back over to two more things. We've got two more things here. First, Beto O'Rourke joining the proud tradition of indignant Democratic wealth hoarders. Now, we talked about Bernie Sanders, right? Well, Beto, whose na- his real name is like Francis or something, um, 
he is not the only one. It's not just Francis. You got multimillionaire Nancy Pelosi. A heckler recently asked her about her net worth during a discussion on income inequality. She dismissed him. Multimillionaire Harry Reid. He was lamenting about the fixed income of a U.S. senator. He's worth millions of dollars, by the way. Multimillionaire Barack Obama describing a $172,000 annual salary as relatively modest. Now, you know you got to be out of touch as a black person in America, permanently tanned as he is, to say that $172,000 is a modest, relatively modest income. Now, it is if you're worth millions of dollars. $172,000 is modest if you're worth millions. But to most Americans, that is upper class. (coughs) Oh, pardon me. That's upper class. That is upper class. For a family of four, 172000 Now, if you live in New York City, it's a pittance. But if you live anywhere else in the country besides the coast, you're living large on one seventy-two. And so, again, it doesn't matter if that's what you make or if that's what you want to make or if you never have a desire to make that. The point is, these people are elected officials. They're supposed to represent the people. So if, if they could just refrain from calling upper-class income relatively modest, it would just be helpful. That's all I'm saying. Just, you know, help, help a sister out. Multimillionaire climate evangelist Al Gore. Remember him? He, shru- he, he, he shrugged off his critics. Remember when he sold out um, to Qatari for they had oil money and there was that whole big deal that he went through and he and made him really wealthy? He dismissed that too. You got Bernie Sanders who says, if you write a best-selling book, you can be a millionaire too. Well, no, you can't. I'm going to go ahead and break some truth off for you. If you're someone who's made yourself famous on peddling failed socialist ideals to kids who haven't yet paid taxes, they don't, they're still living on their parents' dime, they're in college, or young millennials who have not yet had their first child and realize that life is a lot more real than kitschy slogans and, and you know silhouettes of an old guy, then... Yeah, you might find his ideas fine, but for real adults, you know, that whole idea that you're going to get free college and free health care, someone's still got to pay for it. And then there's Bill and Hillary Clinton. And I'll put this link up. Uh, the author of the piece recommends that you bookmark it because I guess he's going to keep updating it with all the candidates and all their millions. Bill and Hillary Clinton, they're worth multiple hundreds of millions of dollars. Beta O'Rourke. Francis, he earned $3.4 million between 2008 and 2017. He only donated 24300 to charity during that period. That's 0.7% of his total income. In 2017, he made $366,455 and he donated just 0.3% to charity. Now, we all know that the Bible calls us to give the first, the tithe, which is the first 10%. We also know that in Christendom here in America, many, many Americans do not meet that mark. That is an issue between each of us as individuals and our Father in heaven. Obedience and paying the tithe rebukes the devourer from off of your income and your home and everything else. It provides you with surety because God promises to open up the windows of heaven and bless you in ways 
that you cannot measure. He'll give you so much more than what you can even use. Your cup will not only overflow, but the blessings will chase you down and overtake you. And it's not just financial blessings. It is blessings overall because obedience brings blessing. That was just a little bit for us Christians. Take it, do with it what you will. But for Francis O'Rourke, who we don't know what his faith walk is, he's not even doing well by the standards of philanthropists and, you know, even the little people who judge us for every little thing that we do, they, they usually give a lot of their income or a percentage of their income to uh, charity. And they do that because it gives them a tax break. They also do that because it gives them the ability to be seen in front of step and repeats and have this just outsized, they kind of get to look down on everybody else because they're not only rich, but they give a lot of money. They like to do it in public so everybody can see it. And Beto O'Rourke must not have gotten the note because he's not giving hardly anything. Now, he's good at talking about what all the rest of us should do, but it turns out he's not doing much at all. Now, he and his wife, Amy, listed assets worth as much as $16 million in their 2018 financial disclosure form. They have a trust in Amy's name that's worth between $1 and $5 million. And recently, somebody actually asked him about the fact that he's just charitably delinquent at a forum that he was hosting. They were like, what exactly is going on with you? Well, he said he does public service. He contributes to the success of his community in ways that are immeasurable. He says that immeasurable contribution should be stacked up against his measurable contributions, including additional charitable donations he claimed to have made without reporting them. (laughs) It doesn't get much better than that, (laughs) y'all. So he really doesn't give that much. Here's the breakdown of all of these Democratic candidates. Beto O'Rourke gives 0.31%, so one-third of 1% of his income to charity. Harris, Kamala Harris, gives 1.4%. Gillibrand, 1.7%. Klobuchar, 1.9%. Bernie Sanders gives 3.4%. Inslee, 4%. And old Liz Warren, I wonder if she gives all of these donations to the tribe that she comes from. Anyway... She gets 5.5%, which is respectable. Um, So, look, Joe Biden, who is also pretty, pretty rich, gives an average of $369 a year to charity in the years leading up to being selected as Barack Obama's running mate. And he barely increased his giving after taking office. And that's chintzy. All right, so then there are others um, that they're going to add to this as they announce for the presidency, and they'll be like, it's like my running list of assaults at Target that I update on my blog. This is this is going to be like that. So we need to post up. We'll post a link of this online. Um, so I, I just there's that story, and then I think I have one more breaking news story for you. Um, and if you head over to my Twitter feed, you'll see it actually. Um, There's a story out about an illegal alien person and he came into the country and while he was, while he was here, he came here illegally, he set up a prostitution business 
on Capitol Hill. It was a regular weekly rendezvous at Union Station on Capitol Hill, just a short walk from Senate Majority Leader, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer's office in the Hart Building. And he called himself El Comandante. He would drive his black Hyundai Santa Fe and take the prostitutes around the streets of D.C. He's an El Salvadoran man who's in the United States illegally. And he was finally sentenced today to over two years in prison for running an illegal commercial business of prostitution that catered to the Hispanic community in Northern Virginia. This started way back in 2001. Yes, I said 2001. 2001, this El Salvadoran comes into the country illegally and starts running a prostitution ring and does so unabated, untouched, until now. He's now been sentenced for doing that. He's 33 years old now, but when he came in, he was 15. He enrolled in Henrendon High School and basically stayed there until he uh, completed the 10th grade. And then after that, he worked uh, for a construction company and an auto repair business. He worked as an HVAC tech. Um, and in addition to those jobs, he ran the illegal prostitution ring. So I don't know how many more of these stories we have to share online and on, on the show, how many more of these stories we have to tweet out, how many more people have to talk about these stories before those who are advocating for illegal immigration and the drug cartels finally just say enough is enough. You're right. We should seal the border. Roving gangs of migrants attacking Yuma, Arizona, American citizens. This guy running a prostitution ring on Capitol Hill. You know, Kate Steinle's killer not being convicted of murder. How much more do we have to take? All right, my allergies have kicked in, and that's the end of the show for today. God bless you. Pray for our nation, and I'll see you tomorrow. Have a great night.